once again are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 to 41. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Please pray with me. Lord, we know that you've given these instructions for a purpose, and it's because you expect them to be followed, to be embraced by all of us. For, Lord, you are our master in heaven. And, Lord, you... We wholly belong to you. You have bought us. And we love even to declare that we are ultimately your slaves. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us insight and understanding. uh, Both to rightly understand what you've said here, but to, to clearly see the implications of what you have penned for us to follow. Lord, that we would see where we don't line up uh, in how we live. And Lord, even in our hearts, where our hearts are out of line with where your heart is. Because, Lord, we want to not only live rightly before men, Lord, we want to have hearts that are right before you. Because, Lord, we want to worship you with all that we are. And so, again, give us insight and help us to grasp your plans for us. Even in this text, we ask this in Christ's name. One of the most haunting phrases, I think, in all of Scripture is the phrase that actually came up three times in today's Scripture reading in Matthew 6. When Christ says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. This assurance, of course, is made to those who do things to be praised by others, who fast to be praised by others, or who pray to be seen by others or heard by others. And I think the, the warning Christ gives here is a bit right, ironic because he's saying they have received their reward. And you would think that if they've received a reward, that would sound like good news. But it's haunting because Jesus is saying that despite all of their efforts, they will receive absolutely no spiritual benefit from them. Because although they they appear to be serving God, they're not. They're just serving themselves. They're serving their own interests. And therefore, they're not going to receive any eternal benefits for where they're investing themselves. And I think the same can be said for how many Christians approach their daily responsibilities and their work. What could potentially have eternal benefit is squandered because what's driving them is merely selfish ambition. Merely to praise 
gain the praise or respect of others. In the passage before us, Paul is addressing how Christians should approach their work as Christians. And the first thing we need to observe in this passage is the key word. Daniel, I want to flip ahead to the first few slides. Thanks, bud. Notice that the word Lord occurs four times. But it's also the same word that's translated masters. And so actually that word, um, which is kurios, occurs seven times in four verses. And really it, it highlights the purpose of the passage. And that same purpose is made explicit three times in three verses. In verses 23, 24, and 25. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. Note, as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Right? And you'll recall that in all the instructions that Paul gave um, following from... 18 onward, chapter 3, verse 18 onward, there are specific applications of the same principle that's given in chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that a Christian should work not just to earn money, not just so they can get benefits, not just so they can gain respect or vacations, They shouldn't work for the weekends. They should work for one reason and one reason alone. And that is because they belong to Christ. And they should seek His glory in all they do. So no matter whether they're slaves, or whether they're masters, whether they're bosses, or whether they're employees, whether they work in a factory or at home, a Christian works ultimately for one motivation. And that's to honor Christ. Why is that? Because as we've seen throughout the letter of the Colossians, Christians recognize that their identity is now in Christ. It's not in the things that this world boasts, the things that this world loves. It's no longer in this, these empty, elementary, vain things of this world. Their identity is Christ. And so now they don't live for that stuff any longer. But everything they do, they do for Him. And so... The, the, the way this passage is broken up, really, it's, we're give, we, he gives instructions to slaves. And he tells them to work for total obedience, sincere obedience, with hearty obedience, in light of an eternal compensation. And then he gives instructions to masters in chapter 4. And really tells them to do two things. Treat your slaves justly and fairly. So let's look, first of all, at the instructions that he gives to slaves. Where he exhorts them to work for total obedience. Verse 22, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Sometimes the translators will translate this word bondservants. It's the word doulos. It means slave. It means slave in, in, in really any, um, any text, ancient text. And the word refers to a person really who's the property of another person. They belong to another person. In Paul's time, slaves actually made up the majority of the Roman population. It was so extensive in the early Christian period that some scholars believe that one out of every two people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And slaves could be acquired in 
a number of different ways. Primarily, it was through military conquest. But they could be born to slave parents. They could be purchased. Uh, They could default on debt and therefore sell themselves into slavery. Um, They could be inherited by other people as slaves. Most of the work that was done in the ancient world was performed by slaves. One scholar listed 120 different occupations that slaves did. So it was the main labor force. Most of the work, most of the labor in the ancient world was performed by slaves. And yet, the slave was, by definition, rightless. He had no recourse to the law. He had no protection. Couldn't be called as a free witness. He couldn't own his own property. And I think it's just really important that we're clear that Paul is not just writing to employees. He's writing to slaves. Again, people owned by other people. And what he calls them to do is obey everything. Those who are your earthly masters. That phrase, earthly masters, is literally those who are your lords according to the flesh, in contrast to their heavenly lord. Again, recognize Paul is not just referring to their employers. He's referring to people who own them, who have the freedom to treat them as they might want. They have absolute power over their lives. And Paul tells these slaves, do whatever they tell you to do, unless it's sin. And not just to avoid punishment, but he says to honor Christ as their Lord. And the language here is very similar to the instructions that he gave to children in verse 20. Notice that. Where he tells children, obey your parents and everything. And the point's the same. Again, unless they're asked to sin against God, the expectation is they should do whatever they're told by their authority to do. Because ultimately they belong to God. And so there should not be a sliver of disobedience in their conduct, either just externally or internally. Because they belong ultimately to God. They're his slaves, and they need to honor him as they seek to honor their earthly masters. And this is why Paul says they're to work towards sincere obedience. That's the next phrase he highlights. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Daniel, you want to advance to the couple couple more? Next button. That word eye service... Uh, as the word sounds, refers to working in, the, working the same way you would work if your master was watching you or fellow employees were watching you. Christian labor should be marked by total integrity. There should never be a moment where a supervisor or fellow worker came upon you doing something and you would be ashamed. You would, you, you would want to defend yourself because you knew what you were doing was inappropriate. And remarkably, two of the words that Paul uses in the sentence appear actually to be words that he coined. It's the word um, eye service and people pleasers. Because after the, the word doesn't occur before this letter is written, only afterwards in Christian writings. Uh, they're only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 6.6, 6, where Paul gives similar instructions to slaves. 
And we need to see the sharp contrast that Paul presents. Christians are not to serve for the eyes of others as if they were seeking to please men, but they're to serve with absolute consistency because they're seeking to serve God. So they don't serve to please other people. They serve to please the one who always sees them. And not just what they do outwardly, he sees their heart. Right? They are to fear God. He's their ultimate judge and master, Paul says. As Jesus admonished his disciples, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. He's your Lord, ultimately. In fact, if a Christian were working primarily to please men, to gain honor from men, it would actually prove that they were, in fact, genuine believers. Consider what Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Rather than serving their masters with mere eye service, they are to serve with sincerity of heart. That that word sincerity of heart means literally with singleness. No duplicity. One single motive. One single person they're trying to please. It carries the connotation seen in the idiom that what you see is what you get. You're not one thing one way before your master and then one thing another way. When he's not watching you. Complete personal integrity and consistency. And as I read that, it was, I was reminded of a, of a friend of mine who once shared with me about his experience in a job interview. He was being interviewed for a, a well-known company. And as part of the hiring process, he was required to take a test that would measure him against other people who were competing for the same position. And essentially, he was led into this room where he was all by himself. There's no windows. And all that was there on the table was a tape recorder, a pencil, and a notebook. And the instructions he was given was to push play. And there would be a series on the tape recorder. So it dates it a little bit. But he push play, and there would be a series of numbers. And he would have to try and remember the series of numbers. And then after there would be a beep, he would press stop. And then he would have to... From memory, write down in order the numbers that he heard. And then he would push play again and there would be another series. Stop and repeat the process for about 15 minutes. And it would get increasingly more difficult. Longer numbers, more random or not longer list of numbers and the the numbers would be more random. And after the, the first two or three series, he began to panic. Because he, he couldn't remember all the numbers. And, and numbers from previous lists were coming into his mind. And then he realized as he was taking this test that he could actually just pick up his pencil and write down the numbers as he heard them. And nevertheless, he, he chose to follow the instructions as given. And ultimately, he just he failed to recall most of the latter part of the test. He couldn't remember those numbers. And... He was incredibly discouraged at this point. But nevertheless, because he chose to follow those instructions, he actually succeeded because the test wasn't seeking to test his 
numerical recollection. It wasn't trying to test his memory. It was trying to test his integrity. It was actually purposely designed for failure. Because nobody, even the most brilliant people, would be able to remember such a list. And so if they came back with a really high score, it would show that the person had actually cheated. And they, this company wanted to hire people that they could trust, no matter if somebody was watching or not. And this is precisely how all Christians should do their work. Because the master whose judgment they care about sees everything they do. And they need to do their work like the slave Joseph, who while he was in Potiphar's house, was enticed by Potiphar's wife to lie with her. And this is what he said. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph recognized, yeah, he wanted to be faithful to his master, but in in sinning, he would not just be sinning against Potiphar and against Potiphar's wife. He'd be actually sinning against God. And so he lived with integrity and he was completely trustworthy in Potiphar's house because he feared God. And he knew he would only be sinning ultimately against his earthly master, or not just against his earthly master, but ultimately his heavenly one. And so Christians need to work towards sincere obedience, but also towards hearty obedience. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And the emphasis on this verse is on the attitude by which one works. The first phrase, whatever you do, it covers everything, whatever you're asked to do, any work that you're called to perform. And then the second phrase, work heartily, speaks both to effort and to attitude. Because that word work, ergazomai, means to labor. It, it, it should be performed with effort and exertion. You should always be laboring, putting in effort in the work that you're called to do, not merely coasting. Not just taking a, a rest, so to speak, when you're not supposed to be resting. So even though slaves recognized, slaves were not paid for their work. They were forced to it. Even though they weren't being paid, Paul says, you need to work your best for your masters. Ultimately, for your heavenly masters. They should put their best efforts into every task they're called to perform. And and not only this, but to do it heartily with a a positive attitude, we would say. Uh, The phrase is literally from the soul, ex suitcase. That is, their work is to be performed as an expression of their heart, expression of their soul. Because literally their work is an expression of their worship. Recall even what Paul said in Romans 12.1. This is your spiritual act of worship. And what's he referring to? Being living sacrifices. To present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. That's your spiritual worship. And really, this is just a repetition of what Paul said in chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Christ. And remember what that meant to do something in the name of Christ meant you did so as a servant of him and as an ambassador of him. You represent Christ. And so slaves, because you represent Christ. No, you represent Christ in everything you do. And so whatever you're called to do, do it with all your heart. So we need to remember that we only have one master whom we serve. And so if we're working simply to make money, it's really not an act of worship unto Christ. It's, it's selfishness. It's greed. It is an act of worship, but not unto Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other. Or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So in your workplace, either you're working for money or respect or prestige, whatever it is, or you're working for Christ. And the way you do your work, and if there's any duplicity in your work, it shows you don't really work for Christ. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. And so the Christian's They need to work towards total obedience, sincere obedience, hearty obedience, but also with an expectation that they will receive eternal compensation. Look at what he says in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. And there is no partiality. Look at that first word there, knowing. The point is, Christians know there's going to be a future judgment. I mean, that's why they trusted in Christ, is because they knew that unless they were in Christ, when that judgment came, they would be rightly and justly cast into hell. And so they came to Him fearing that judgment. And so knowing that future judgment's coming, they should continue to serve Him in light of that coming day. And in fact, this is precisely what drove Paul in all of his ministry. In contrast with the false teachers who are caught up in earthly ambitions. Look in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And just see how Paul makes this contrast as he describes his own ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 6. He says, so we're always of good courage. Because we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due For what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is the same thing Paul is saying to the Colossian slaves here. Except, he's not speaking about ministry. He's just speaking about where God has placed them in their life. As slaves. He says, each person will receive compensation from God based upon how faithfully and how heartily they worked. No matter what position they've been placed in. No matter who their master is. No matter how much they get paid or not paid. Because they work unto the Lord. 
And again, we need to keep in mind, Paul is speaking to slaves who legally own no property. And Paul is telling these people who, when they die, won't have anything to their name. They'll probably just be forgotten. In fact, they might not even be connected with their children anymore. He's telling these people that you will be compensated with an eternal compensation. You're going to have an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1. And they can have absolute confidence that they're going to receive that inheritance because they've already been qualified for it. On account of the work of Christ. Remember Colossians 1.12. You can just look there. Flip over one page when Paul says he gives thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. They're already qualified because they're in Christ. It's they're going to receive it. Nothing's going to take it away from them. And so all who are in Christ are pre-qualified to receive a glorious inheritance. However, he also knows that those who are unfaithful will be punished. Remember Paul speaking again to Christian slaves. He's not warning their masters here yet, though the implication applies. He's not warning unbelievers, though that applies to them too. This warning, that is. His, his warning is directed to, to Christian slaves who won't work heartily or in sincerity and who wrong their masters by failing to do their best. And he doesn't explain what this payment for wrongdoing will look like. He just he just simply says it's going to happen. Nobody's going to get away with anything. That's what he's saying. And that's because there's no partiality with God. Look at verse 25. There is no partiality. God will judge us with a pure judgment. His rewards and his punishments will not be corrupted by ignorance or favoritism or bribery. Each person is going to receive precisely what they deserve. Because God sees everything. And we know half the people that get promoted in this country don't deserve to be promoted. It's because they're friends with somebody who's promoting them. Or they cheated. Or there could be a countless numbers of reasons. It happens all the time, both in academics, it happens all the time in the workplace. But there will be a day when everyone will receive exactly what they deserve. And so Paul wants the Colossian slaves to work in light of the future compensation they will receive from their ultimate master. A reward that will be so great, no amount of blessing or loss in this life can be compared to it. Romans 8.18. Remember when Paul said... For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. He's telling the slaves, work heartily. You may not get paid. You might not ever get time off. You might die in your labor. But you will be rewarded with an eternal reward. Unlike those people who are senators and they have... 5,000 slaves and they get much money and they have all the honors in the Roman Empire. You're going to receive so much more reward that all of that is just going to, feel, it's going to seem like pennies. Anticipate. 
So Paul then addresses masters in chapter 4, verse 1. When he says, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Masters, of course, refers to, to people who own slaves. Again, he's not referring to employers who paid people with wages, but slave owners. Christian slave owners. And they would have other Christians as property. And we know of one. Philemon owned the slave Onesimus. And we'll look at that in a few weeks. It's noteworthy that Paul does not speak either for or against the practice of slavery. Any of, in any time he mentions slaves in the Bible. And, and I think it's because Paul is not so much concerned here about the reality that slavery exists. As much as he's concerned about the condition of the hearts of both masters and slaves. What he cares about is their heart before God. That's what his responsibility is. And that's where he directs his attention. And he focused on two areas where masters need to direct their attention. And their focus is to be on how they treat their slaves. They're to treat them with justice and fairness. That word justly you're familiar with, it's the word dikaios. The root of it is is where we get the word righteousness or justification. One of the most common terms in the book of Romans. It refers to justice. It has both moral and legal connotations. Essentially, it means to do what is right in the eyes of God. What God considers right, do that. Treat your slaves in the way God would have you treat them. That word, that word means do it is right in the eyes of God. Just because they're masters doesn't mean they have freedom to sin against their slaves just because they're slaves. They must behave towards them with complete righteousness. Their higher social station, even the fact that they own them, gives them no freedom to treat them any differently than they would treat any other human being. They have no more right to sin against they're slaves and they have a right to sin against God. He also tells them to treat their slaves with fairness or equity or equality. In fact, the root of the same word is used in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, where Peter says Christians have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. It's the same word. Equal standing. Treat them of people who have Obtained an equal standing. So Paul is saying here that Christian masters should treat their slaves as those who have equal standing before God. And so he's he's probably talking about treating them fairly with one another, but they should treat their their all of their slaves with fairness because their standard is one that comes from God. Right? That's the standard by which they should decide how they treat the various people in their lives. And just consider, if the standard is the one that comes from God, how does God treat His slaves? He blesses their socks off. And He rewards them with rewards 
that they would never, ever expect to have. He blesses them beyond their wildest expectation. And, and this is the same pattern we see in other passages of Scripture. Husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. Masters, treat your slaves like God treats His slaves. Christians, love your enemies as Christ loved His enemies. Our standards for how we treat one another are based upon the way God has set up those standards. He is our example. And that example needs to be demonstrated consistently. No matter who that person is. In fact, masters need to treat their slaves as they themselves would want to be treated. Again, neither their position nor the fact that they owned those people gives them license to ignore Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. Those famous words taken from Matthew 7.12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So you want to know how to treat your slave, master? What would you have them do to you? And I think most people, especially if they were slaves, would conclude that a master treating their slave with righteousness and with fairness or equity would clearly mean that they should be released from bondage. Maybe. But again, I think the standard goes way beyond just manumission. Given, again, Paul's appeal to remember their master in heaven. But even if manumission is what this would look like, it's noteworthy that Paul doesn't actually tell them to do this. He appeals instead to their heart. He wants them to choose from their hearts out of their own judgment what they should do in light of the fact that their identity is now in Christ. Now that you represent Him, how should you treat your slaves? He wants them to be driven by love for God and for other people, not simply a legalistic principle like don't own own slaves. He wants the masters to know that they will be judged based upon how well they follow this command as well. Right? Knowing you have a master in heaven. You you yourself are judged by that master. And he has standards for how he expects you to treat other people. And so if you disregard his standards for how you treat people, guess how he's going to respond to you. If you fail to treat your slaves the way God has commanded and you mistreat them, you're just proving that you're a hypocrite. So Paul's addressing slaves and masters in this passage. But we obviously don't live in a country where slavery is legal. And so how do... Such instructions apply to us. Well, I think quite simply, we just need to treat other people with righteousness and fairness. 
regardless of their stations in life. And I think the implications go actually way beyond how bosses treat their employees. That's the, that's the most common application for this passage, and it's totally appropriate and fitting. But I think if you understand the heart of what Paul is saying here, it goes way beyond that. Just because a person works for us, again, doesn't give us the freedom to treat them with disdain. Just because we're wealthy and they're poor doesn't give us the freedom to ignore their needs. Just because we're smarter doesn't give us the freedom to dismiss their opinions. Just because we're popular and they're nerds doesn't give us the freedom to make fun of them. Just because we're younger and they're older doesn't mean we can ignore them. And just because we're older and they're younger doesn't mean we have freedom to treat them with scorn or to be grouchy in the way we talk about them or to them. Again, this is an application of the principle given in chapter 3, verse 17, or even chapter 3, verse 11. Again, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. That is what should govern the way we treat people. If you're in Christ, you recognize you're a servant of Him. And if anybody else is in Christ, you recognize they're a part of the same body that you're a part of. And they have equal value, equal standing before God. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.16, where Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Not the same way the world thinks. See, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Because of the reality of our new identity in Christ, everything has been flipped on its head. So we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ, Paul goes on to say. We no longer seek to make others serve us, but we seek to serve others in everything. And we no longer strive to exalt ourselves if we're Christians, but to humble ourselves. Whether slaves or masters, because we remember these these very solemn words that I'm going to close with, that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 10. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he called them to him and said said to them this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Let me just repeat that. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be, would be first among you must be slave of all. As Christians, we aspire to be slaves. Not to get other people to serve us and to exalt us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me.
Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. And this should, this should color the way we do all of our work. Whether we're working at home or whether working in a factory, it should color everything that we do. How we speak, how we respond, what we talk about. For we serve the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize how far short we fall of the standard. And yet we would, also, we would also proclaim it is a glorious standard. And yet, Lord, we don't want to despise it. Meaning we don't want to just move past it quickly. We, we certainly don't want to look at it as being beyond our ability to obey. Because that would be to despise your word. Lord, you've given us these commands because you expect them to be followed. Because we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. And so, Father, help us to be a church of humble, submissive, and joyful slaves. No matter where we're at in life. And no matter what activity performed because we perform it for you. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name belong glory and honor and praise. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.